What happens to people when they are in a coma? Now, this is a question that doctors and researchers have long tried to figure out an answer. Is someone aware of what's happening? Do they even know that they are in a coma or is it, or is it just sleep? Well, Dr. Adrian Owen has been conducting some amazing research on this. Uh, he's the professor of cognitive neuroscience and imaging at the University of Western Ontario and author of The Gray Zone, a neuroscientist explores the border between life and death. And he joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. Can you tell me a bit about your research and how have you been exploring this idea? Yeah, so um, we've been looking at this for some years now. And of course, as you, as, as you said in your introduction, the idea is, now, what really goes on uh, in the in the brains of patients who are lying comatose and seemingly completely unresponsive in a hospital bed? And that's, this may be after a traumatic brain injury or even a non-traumatic brain injury, like like a heart attack. And we use various neuroimaging techniques. The one we use most frequently is called fMRI or functional magnetic resonance imaging. Uh, and we put these patients into the scanner. And we try to explore whether any of them are still able to process any information from the outside world. And what we've been able to show is that, sure enough, some of them are. Some of them are actually conscious. They're aware. They're aware of who they are, where they are, and the situation they're in. Uh, and some of them we've even been able to communicate with while they're in that situation. How? Right. <laughs> well, um, it's actually simpler than you, than you might think. I mean, the idea goes behind the, the old sort of clinical um, thought that, I mean, I'm sure everybody listening to this has seen a medical drama where a doctor will take a patient's hand and say, squeeze my hand if you can hear me. And if the patient squeezes the doctor's hand, then the doctor knows that the patient is aware because they are responsive. They've responded to a request to make an action. Now, we know our patients can't respond. They're physically incapable of responding. But the question is, can they respond with their brains? So we put them into the scanner and we have them imagine certain scenarios. So for example, we might say, imagine you're playing a game of tennis. Now we know when somebody thinks about standing on a tennis court and waving their arms around and running vigorously, a certain part of the brain will activate, known as the uh, premotor cortex. And if, if we see that response in the patient, when we say something like, imagine playing tennis, then we know that they are actually responding. Now, not with their body in the traditional way, but they're responding with their brains. And the next step is to turn that into communication. We ask patients to imagine one thing to indicate a yes and imagine something else to indicate a no. And as I say, we've been able to communicate with a small number of patients uh, using that technique. Okay, so then, Dr. Ron, if that's the case, then, like, if some patients in a coma can wake up, right? Is there any ever recollection of the conversations or like, why don't they remember that? That's interesting. Now, some of them actually, some of them actually do. Uh, we had a famous case here uh, in Ontario uh, of a patient who had uh, actually, he progressed from a coma to a so-called vegetative state, which meant that he was still completely non-responsive, but he did, he did at least open his eyes. Uh, we scanned him um, and then uh, nine months later, uh, he had recovered, uh, and we brought him back to, to Weston and, and asked him if he remembered anything uh, about what had happened to him. And not only did he remember a few things, he remembered every tiny detail. I would say, well, do you, do you remember what color the, 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 uh, the um, electrodes were that we put on your head? He said, yes, they were blue. And I said, do you remember who, do you remember who did the scan? He said, yes, it was your research assistant, Steve. 
We had extremely detailed memory of everything that had gone on. Yet at the time, we and everybody else, um, all of his uh, attending physicians and his family, believed him to be uh, completely unaware. Yet we showed that not only was he aware, but he remembered the entire uh, series of events. Okay, so are there different types of coma? Like, can you can you say that if someone is in a coma, this would work, or does it really depend on the situation? Uh, I think every patient is every patient is completely different. Um, so, uh, I mean, some some patients uh, are in a coma because they've been in, in a traumatic brain, uh, traumatic accident. They have been in a vehicle of a car that's crashed, or or somebody's. Uh, assaulted them. Um, but we see a lot of non-traumatic brain injuries as well. Uh, patients who've lost oxygen to the brain, for example, because they've had a heart attack or maybe they've had a, a near drowning incident. So there are many different reasons why somebody can end up in a coma. It does seem that this is a little bit more common in patients that have had uh, a traumatic brain injury. Um, but we, we've seen it in, 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 all sorts of, in all sorts of patients. It's not something that we can predict in advance. And that's why we've really been advocating that this sort of brain imaging really should become standard of care for many of these patients. Because honestly, at the bedside, you really can't tell who is going to have some re residual function and even even awareness and, and, and who isn't. Right. So, but this, we're talking about a response in the brain. Are we assuming communication from that, Dr. Owen? Because a response is not the same as actually having a two-way communication. Well, let me give you an example. I mean, if I were to hold your hand and I said, well, you know, squeeze my left hand for a yes and squeeze my right hand for a no. And I said, well, you know, is my name Adrian Owen? And you, you squeeze my left hand, that's you signaling a yes. Now, obviously, we're not having a, a two-way communication, but we've come up with a simple way of, of being able to communicate with one another. I ask you questions, you squeeze one hand for yes, one hand for no. Essentially, what we're doing with the brain, in, the brain imaging is exactly the same. We say, imagine one thing for a yes and one thing for a no. And of course, there are many checks and balances. This is something we have to replicate many times. We have to make absolutely sure we're, we're, we're completely confident that the, the message is coming through uh, loud and clear. And it isn't something that happens in every patient. It's, like, it's actually fairly rare. But when it does happen, yes, it is a form of communication, um, and uh, you know that if you if you accept that you can communicate by squeezing your hands, then I think you have to accept you can communicate by changing the pattern of activity in your brain. Okay, so when you say it doesn't happen for every coma patient, is there a way to determine like which ones this might work for, which ones this might not work for? There isn't a way of determining that in advance, but one really important thing that I haven't said yet is that this does relate to the chances of recovery. So the better, uh, the patients who are able to do these mental feats, if you like, the patients who seem to have some residual brain function, some residual awareness, those are the patients who are most likely to go on to have some level of recovery. So this is why it's extremely important that we do this. Beyond finding a patient being aware and maybe communicating with them, it's really trying to, to predict who is most likely to recover? Because then we can, we can really help those people. Okay, so then where do you take, where's the next step then for your research? Well, historically, I mean, we've, we've been doing this work for about uh, almost 20 years now. And mostly, it, it, it's, up until recently, it's been in so-called long-term or chronic patients, patients who are in a vegetative state or a minimally conscious state. 
But most recently, we've moved into the ICU to start looking at patients in the first few days after a brain injury. That's patients who are, are comatose. And we're having tremendous success with um, establishing that some of these patients aren't what they appear to be. Some of them can still hear. Some of them can still understand spoken language. Some of them can even, uh, some of them are actually completely aware of everything going on around them. It's a small minority. It's probably between 15 and 20% of the patients that we see. But we are developing new tools using things like machine learning that everybody's talking about at the moment to try and use this information to augment the, the doctor's opinions, the, the, the predictions that the doctors can make about whether a patient is going to live or, or, or not survive through a, a serious brain injury in the ICU. And this is, you know, as I say, this is tremendously important because there are many, many patients die in our ICUs and many of them die because they are withdrawn from life-sustaining measures and uh, most people understand why that happens and why that's necessary and why it's the case but the possibility is that some of those patients maybe should be given a little bit more time uh, before that decision is made and I think that's what we're that's it's those patients that we're really trying to identify. All right, well thank you so much for talking to us about it today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So interesting. That's Dr. Adrian Owen, Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience and Imaging at the University of Western Ontario, author of The Grey Zone, A Neuroscientist Explores the Border Between Life and Death. What cool work he is doing.